The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Because a, a friend and comrade of mine was telling me long before I was even assigned this talk um, that one day um, as her toddler daughter was you know, using all of her energy and effort to like, successfully remove her shoes, um, you know, she did as so many parents do uh, to their children. Um, she praised her saying, that's a big girl. Um, and her daughter uh, looked up at her and said, I'm a big boy. So my friend paused, looked at her daughter and said, yeah, you're a big boy. And they went about their day. Um, now, we don't actually know uh, what her daughter meant uh, by those words. Um, maybe it was something profound um, about her own identity, or maybe she was just you know, testing words and language. Um, but what struck me uh, as I thought about it later is that certainly the majority of parents um, in the same, I think probably utterly common scenario, would say something along the lines of, no sweetie, you're a big girl. Um, and I start with that anecdote not to diss anyone's parenting. Um, I think that uh, many wonderful, loving parents say those kinds of things to their children all the time. My point um, is more one um, that I hope to develop throughout this talk um, about how the gender binary is, is an ideology, really, and that it reproduces itself. Um, to borrow the words um, of Barbara Fields, uh, who talks about race ideology. Um, and it re reproduces itself in ways that are mundane, um, natural, uh, almost invisible, or you know, seem natural. Um, and it, they're like the air we breathe, right? That's, that's how ideology works. Um, and that's what it's about. So the binary whose origins can be traced back to the organization of society into distinct classes found its consolidation, um, we say, under modern capitalism. So what we know as this binary, right, like what we live and feel and accept or not accept and fight against um, every day is really only as inevitable as the context from which it emerged. Gender, whether or not it's the way one feels or knows themselves to be, is, at least in the first instance, imposed. Sometimes in those subtle ways, like, no, sweetie, you're a girl, and sometimes quite brutally, as we'll see, and really everywhere in between. Um, and so the question that raises, really, is when something has to be imposed so relentlessly and so ubiquitously, it's a pretty good indication that there's probably nothing natural about it. Um, and that little anecdote came back to me as I was prepping for this talk, and I had to do a lot of prepping for this talk because I'm not an expert on gender. Um, I'm hoping that some of you are. Um, and if you we're hoping to hear an expert on gender, well, I apologize. Um, but I was reading um, Delusions of Gender by Cordelia Fine, which I was just telling somebody is such a great book. Um, not just because it's informative about neuroscience, but it's hilarious. Like, how do you be hilarious about neuroscience? I don't know, but this woman has accomplished that goal. Um, and she has a chapter in this book called Gender Detectives that deals with children. I actually think there could probably be a whole talk about children and gender that would be worth um, pursuing. Um, and she talks about the rigidity of the gender code, really how the gender binary begins even before birth. 
um, as anyone who's walked around pregnant will tell you. Um, she references some amusing anecdotes, I think, from the academic literature um, on children and gender difference, um, and I wanted to share one with you. It says, quote, one child believed that men drink tea and women drink coffee because that was the way it was in his house. He was thus perplexed when a male visitor requested coffee. Another child, dangling his legs with his father in a very cold lake, announced, only boys like cold water, right, Dad? Such examples suggest that children are seeking and chewing on information about gender rather than passively absorbing it from the environment, end quote. So I think that tells us something about the detective work that my friend's daughter was doing when she made her assertion. And I think what's also exposed uh, by the child's seemingly ridiculous rules about gender is that they're not very different, actually, uh, if at all, um, from the rules that we know so well. You know, girls like pink, boys like blue. Uh, the only reason that sounds funny and off to us um, is because we know the code. The pink, the blue, the skirts, the pants, the shoes, the hair, and on and on and on, we, we, we know them. Um, but it's not that different from men like coffee, women like tea, or, or whatever it was. Um, we know those arbitrary rules to the marrow of our bones because we live in this society. Um, they make sense to us. But coffee and tea, you know, what, a, what an absurdly, ridiculously, adorably, whatever thing to say. Um, it turns out, as more and more people are getting wise to, um, and that's also part of the theme of <laughs> this talk, is that the whole thing is a scam and a lie. Um, that men and women, uh, as Joan Ruffgarden, who wrote an amazing book called Evolution's Rainbow, explains, um, are social categories. And so that just means that the criteria for what fits into those categories is determined by society, not actually biology. As Ruffgarden puts it, quote, the definition of social categories rests with society, not science. And social categories can't be made to coincide with biological categories except by fiat. So another way to say it is that these categories are made up. They're real because everything in society continues to reinforce them. Um, and again, I, I think we're living through a time where that's changing. Um, but I do want to borrow Fields again, who talks about race ideology, because I think it's pertinent to this. She says, ideologies are real, but it does not follow that they are scientifically accurate or that they provide an analysis of social relations that would make sense to anyone who does not take ritual part in these relations. Ideologies do not need to be plausible, let alone persuasive, to outsiders. They do their job when they help insiders make sense of the things they do and see, ritually, repetitively, on a daily basis. Now, Ruffgarden says male and female are biological categories. But this terminology exists to distinguish between germ cells that can unite and form a zygote. Those germ cells are called gametes. If they're small, they're called sperm. If they're the larger of the two, they're called eggs. Now, from a biological standpoint, that is all that these categories mean, making small gametes or making large gametes. And that's true of all species. Of course, in our society, Ruff Garden reminds us, biological categories are conflated with social categories resulting in the overwhelmingly common, and I think increasingly annoying to a growing number of people, mistake called essentialism. And if you think scientists don't make that mistake, you would be wrong, um, but we'll come back to that. Now, if you take from that point, okay, the gender binary may not be real, but the biological binary most certainly is, well, you'd also be wrong about that, 
It turns out that within biological categories exists a spectrum, and between biological categories of male and female exists a spectrum. This is what Ruff Garden means when she says succinctly, nature abhors a category. One in every 1,500 to 2,000 births, that is a lot, is an intersex baby, meaning that the baby doesn't fit neatly into either biological category. And that can mean anything from ambiguous or in-between internal or external reproductive organs, hormone levels, or what's called mosaic genetics, where some cells have XX and some cells have XY chromosomes. Sometimes it's a few of those things. The experience of intersex people, I think, is one of the most hidden examples of the imposition of the gender binary. The Intersex Society of North America, or ISNA, tells us that, quote, sometimes a person isn't found to have intersex anatomy until she or he reaches the age of puberty, or finds himself an infertile adult, or dies of old age as an, and is autopsy. Some people live and die with intersex anatomy without anyone, including themselves, ever knowing. And it can be a brutal imposition. Um, there's an amazing documentary that I highly recommend people watch called Intersection, Gender Ambiguity Unveiled. Um, and in it, um, you can hear the voices of many uh, people born with intersex, and one of them is um, a man from Hamburg, Germany, named Mikkel Reiter. And he says, I have to try not to get emotional on this one. <laughs> Let me take a sip of water. Um, he says, I was born with a penis, so it was possible to assign me as male at birth. Two weeks after birth, doctors told my parents, because the chromosomes are female, I have to be assigned female. My first surgery was at age one. My parents weren't able to tell the neighborhood the truth, so we moved. I was a trustless, isolated child that very often went with my parents into the mountains. The mountains are very empty. There are no people there. Later, at about age eight, every half year, I'd go to the hospital to widen the vagina. I had about 200 examinations in my life. I didn't want these examinations, but my mother took me to them. I didn't trust her. I saw her collaborating with my enemies. These operations have been performed by the millions on babies sold to their parents by doctors as being for their own good. That's the logic of the binary. ISNA has put forward the voices of people with intersex, now adults, who say that these surgeries were performed without their ability to consent and have left them physically and emotionally scarred. Among intersex people who have had non-consensual surgery, the secrecy, shame, pain, and loss of trust that Mikkel describes have been running features throughout their lives. ISNA's website also has a list of what parents should ask doctors before deciding on surgery. Sometimes there are real medical emergencies that require surgery if the urethra isn't fully formed, for example. But far too much of the time, surgery is the treatment for parental distress over what are perceived aesthetic issues. ISNA suggests to new parents, get a diagnosis. Are you, is what you're dealing with medical, or I would ask ideological? And I should say that they've, been, they've had some influence um, in preventing surgeries um, that have been happening, and, and people can talk more about that, too. But I think one of the, um, their website is fantastic, by the way, um, and people should check it out. Um, and one of the things that's on there, I'll quote here, it says, intersex is a socially constructed category that reflects real biolog biological variation. To better explain this, we can liken the sex spectrum to the color spectrum. 
There's no question that in nature there are different wavelengths that translate into colors most of us see as red, blue, orange, yellow. But the decision to distinguish, say, between orange and red-orange is made only when we need it, like when we're asking for a particular paint color. I think there's something pretty profound um, in there. And if you think about it, really, sex, um, what we understand as biological sex, is socially constructed because gender has been superimposed onto it. Um, so we have a lot to learn from our bodies and what they tell us about nature, um, and at least part of what's necessary to understand um, is that we have to reject the urge to try and place everything, as Rough Garden reminds us, in, in the natural world into a neatly defined category. Part of the problem, of course, is that doctors, researchers, scientists, those whose studies can teach us about the myriad complexities of the relationship between body and mind, aren't immune to ideology. After all, they live in this society too. All too often, gender sex difference research, as it's called, is doomed from the beginning because it already fully accepts what it is setting out to prove, that the brains of those categorized as men or women are different. But while ideas espoused in books like Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, you have to, you have to mention that book in this talk, um, or my personal favorite, Why Men Don't Listen and Women Can't Read Maps, <laughs> are starting to feel outdated, I think they still represent the starting point for our understanding of gender. And they use neuroscience, or as Cordelia Fine calls it, neuro-nonsense, <laughs> to back up their claims that you can find evidence for differences in the brains of men and women. Um, and she has a chapter, very cleverly titled also, called Brain Scans, um, where she provides um, an, exa an example. I mean, this book is full of examples. I really had to pick and choose here. Um, but she says, Possibly, possibly my favorite illustration of a self-serving projection of prejudices onto brain jargon is a section in John Gray's Why Mars and Venus Collide, it's the same person that wrote blah blah blah, um, in which he discusses the inferior parietal lobe, IPL. In men, says Gray, the left IPL is more developed, while in women it is the right side that is larger. It will come as no surprise to anyone, I am sure, to learn that, quote, the left side of the brain has more to do with linear, reasonable, and rational thought, while the right side of the brain is more emotional, feeling, and intuitive. But it is extraordinary just how differently the IPL serves its master and its mistress. According to Gray, a man's large left IPL being involved in the perception of time explains why he becomes so impatient with how long a woman talks. By contrast, the IPL also, quote, allows the brain to process information from the senses, particularly in selective attention, like when women are able to respond to a baby's crying in the night. Perhaps deliberately, we're left in the dark as to whether the male inferior parietal lobe enables a man to do the exact same. So, um, this sort of research uh, is used all the time. Um, it contradicts itself, it uses small sample sizes that can't provide anything close to conclusive evidence, and in some cases, even lies in the citations. Fine uh, went through many, many books, God bless her, uh, with a fine-tooth comb and found that for example, Luann Brizendine, author of the book The Female Brain and director of the University of California San Francisco's Women's Moon and Hormone Clinic, 
um, listed, quote, personal communication with Harvard-based cognitive neuroscientist Lindsay Overman in the citations of her um, discussion of mir mirror neurons. Fine emailed Overman to ask about the citation. Overman said she'd never had any communication with Bryson Dean. Um, but it's not always as straightforward as this. It's probably not true that the majority of these researchers are simply lying. Um, so why all the terrible research? And I think here um, we can turn to Anne Fausto Sterling, um, the biologist who wrote a number of books, but the one I read for this talk um, is Myths of Gender. Um, and again, she goes through much more detail about some of these studies that are considered more sophisticated than you know, Dr. Gray's um, studies, but Dr. Gray uses those studies as well um, for, for the evidence in, in his books. Um, but this is fantastic and remarkably accessible, um, so I recommend this one um, too. Um, and I think um, she has so many profound insights, and I apologize because I'm gonna be quoting her um, a little bit at length. Um, but she says, the answer may be about like, you know, why there's bad research. The answer may be found if, rather than simply dismissing these researchers as bad at their trade, we think about what they do as conventional science. In analyzing male-female differences, these scientists peer through the prism of everyday culture using the colors so separated to highlight their questions, design their experience, and interpret their results. More often than not, their hidden agendas, non-conscious and often unarticulated, bear strong resemblance to broader social agendas. Historians of science have become increasingly aware that even in the most objective of fields, chemistry and physics, a scientist may fail to see something that is right under his or her nose because currently accepted theory cannot account for the observation. Although no one can be entirely successful, all serious scientists strive to eliminate such blind spots. The prospects for success diminish enormously, however, when the area of research touches one very personally. And what could be more personally significant than our sense of ourselves as male or female? Um, in the study of gender, like sexuality and race, it is inherently impossible for any individual to do unbiased research." End quote. Um, now, fine, I should say, uh, in we're back to delusions of gender, um, uh, does point out that there have been found to be some sex differences in the brain, giving the example of differences in vulnerabilities to psychological disorders. She makes the point that that argument isn't, that the argument isn't that this research should be abandoned. Um, and because we know so very little about the brain, to project our own ideas onto gender rather than understanding how brain development is actually a dynamic process that reflects our environment, it doesn't really tell us anything. Um, and again, I'm going to turn to Fausto Sterling because she defines environment. I think people, you know, when you say environment, it can mean many things to many people, but it's a, also um, a vast myriad of things. She says, each of us has many histories. The genetic histories of our ancestors, the chance encounter of a particular egg bearing some assortment of genetic information with a particular sperm bearing some other set, the racial, social, economic, and psychological histories of our families, our sex, birth order, and role within the family, our interactions with myriad adults, children, places, and schools as we grow up. In short, all these chance events, from an inspiring concert attended at the last minute to a sudden death or severe accident or illness, 
form part of our individual histories, which cumulatively change with each passing year. It is the sum of these events that becomes part of what, for convenience sake, we call environment. Um, the fact that is, I think, overwhelmingly ignored in most of these studies is that there are far, far more similarities that are found when studying the brains really of anyone, certainly those who are categorized as men or women, than there are any differences. What happens is that people make leaps um, when they do find the slightest difference and try to explain it with something that they've already absorbed about gender. Um, so I guess it begs the question as to how this gender binary came to be in the first place. Um, and if you really want to delve into the question of how and why this gender binary emerged, I would say there's probably no better place to start than Sharon Smith's book, Women and Socialism. She happens to be sitting right here. But really, um, in, the, in the second chapter in particular, um, there's a discussion of the origins of women's oppression um, that goes through how this social category emerged. Um, and yeah, I think, um, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to go through this entire history. It's vast, as you well know. Um, but for me, um, I think reading this chapter, much like reading, um, uh, I think it was Lance Selfa who wrote like the origins of slavery and, and racism, provided an excellent starting point um, to begin. Um, but for Marxists, the answer um, is not the argument that you will often hear, that men have just, you know, always dominated women. There's a degree of sophistication, I understand, um, um, in the argument, but I think ultimately that is um, the premise of that, of that argument that I've heard. Um, aside uh, from that being historically inaccurate, it falls into the trap of essentialism. Um, it implicitly accepts men and women as biological categories. If we agree that those are not biological categories, then we have to get through the complexity of how those social categories emerged, how those rules developed. Marxists argue that the answer lies in the way that society organizes production and reproduction, that is, how things get made and distributed, and how society organizes the responsibility of raising up its newest members, or what Marxists call the next generation of workers. Um, and what seems to us as the most natural of configurations, the nuclear family, um, uh, was really, as Sharon says in her book, unknown uh, to humans before class society. And by class society, I mean the division of society between those who own and control the means of production and its distribution, and those who do the actual producing but have no control over its distribution. We understand the primary battle in society as being ultimately between those two contending classes. Now, you can say to me, well, there's a whole bunch of different classes um, that exist, and you would be right. Um, but those who don't fit neatly into either category, at the end of the day, at what we call the final battle, um, they're going to have to pick a side. Either you're with the owners, the thieves, or you're with the producers. Um, human history is vast, but it's worth it um, for this talk to go through in very, very broad strokes, as I said, um, some of what we know. So humans have organized society in a variety of ways. Um, there haven't always been classes, uh, for example, um, and there haven't always been owners of all the wealth, which makes sense because there wasn't always a lot of wealth to accumulate until the technology existed and advanced enough to produce a surplus and to store that surplus. There were no nomadic hunter-gatherer societies hundreds of thousands of years ago that existed for hundreds of thousands of years that had to hunt, fish, and forage for food and then move on 
you know, once the area had been depleted or, you know, I don't know, they couldn't deal with the wildlife. I, I don't know. We don't know. Um, but they had to, they had to move on um, and, and if they could no longer provide for the tribe in that area. But the advent of agricultural technology, um, its earliest iterations about 10,000 years ago, made it possible for settled societies to take root. Um, this was a big deal. Uh, this transformation from nomadic hunter-gatherer societies to settled agricultural ones, again, taking place over hundreds of thousands of years, did not look exactly the same across the globe, but they seem to have shared some important basic features, and they resulted in the accumulation of a surplus and a class that rose to control that surplus. As settled societies developed further, key areas of production moved from the household to the fields. Um, and as it says, here in Sharon's book. Damn it. Technological advances in agricultural production sharply increased the productivity of labor. This in turn increased the demand for labor. The greater the number of field workers, the higher the surplus. Thus, unlike hunter-gatherer societies, which sought to limit the number of offspring, agricultural societies sought to maximize women's reproductive potential. So the family would have more children to help out in the fields. Therefore, at the same time that men were playing an increasingly exclusive role in production, women were required to play a more central role in reproduction. Um, now, there's obviously much more to say and get into, but suffice it to say, there are material reasons um, for the emergence of what we now know as the binary. Um, and it's important to note that this wasn't simply about biology, but about a political transformation um, in production. Um, and here I'm going to uh, quote uh, anthropologist Karen Sachs, um, who explains, uh, private property transferred the relations between men and women within the household only because it also radically changed the political and economic relations in the larger society. For Engels, the new wealth in domesticated animals meant that there was a surplus of goods available for exchange between productive units. With time, production by men specifically for exchange, purpose, specifically for exchange purposes developed, expanded, and came to overshadow the household's production for use. As production of exchange eclipsed production for use, it changed the nature of the household the significance of women's work within it, and consequently, women's position in society. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's in broad strokes how we got um, to where we are today and why this gender binary has sort of established itself as natural. Um, now, the next question you might be asking um, is, can the binary be successfully challenged under capitalism? Um, and I think we already have our answer uh, to that question um, because it is being successfully challenged, I think, and we're watching uh, it change right before our eyes. It's actually a pretty incredible moment that we're living, to, living through. I mean, it, it, maybe it's a, a question of age, but um, if you're anywhere in your 30s or 40s, and, and beyond, um, it, this is vastly, vastly different um, from what we experienced um, as kids. And that is nothing um, to shake a stick at or whatever the expression is. Um, the, it's, it, the trans moment, as it's been dubbed, has, in my opinion, irrevocably propelled trans identity into the mainstream. Um, and yeah, that's a good thing.
And I should say that I don't think it's just a moment. I don't think it's fleeting. I think the world is different now. Um, and that's quite something um, to wrap your head around. Um, unless you're living under a rock, you've noticed that change too. I mean, um, people probably saw Katie Couric um, has a documentary that, that aired, which isn't bad, called The Gender Revolution, in which she, you know, sometimes clumsily, but genuinely, um, interviews trans and non-binary folks and families across the country about their experiences in their lives. Um, whatever criticisms one might have of Couric, if you're a trans kid and you watch that documentary, um, you know, you can imagine the kind of impact that that will have. Um, if you go to Amazon to try and look for books on the question, which of course I did, um, you'll find no, short, no shortage of books for parents raising trans kids, non-binary guides to sex, and even books with titles like The Bible and the Transgender Experience, How Scripture Supports Gender Variance. Yeah, <laughs> things have changed, people. Um, <laughs> Uh, people may or may not know that on June 18th, the World Health Organization, and this is from The Guardian, quote, discreetly recategorized transgenderism in the new catalog, which still needs to be approved by UN member countries, so-called gender incongruence, essentialism, is now listed under conditions related to sexual health instead of mental, behavioral, and neurodevelopmental disorders. Another thing to clap for, yes, indeed. Um, and again, you can imagine the impact this will have um, on trans folks who decide to have gender-affirming surgery, for example. You don't have to go and get this diagnosis um, first. Um, so I, I think this is a seminal moment, as I said. Um, trans identity, um, which is more visible than it's ever been, has called into question, I think, very concretely, not just this bogus type of research that I talked about, but it has forced us to look at gender square in the face. And while many trans folks still conform to the binary, um, trans identity nonetheless raises questions um, about it, its expansiveness. And now, I think, non-binary non identity, identity is also coming um, into the spotlight. Um, gender is about nothing more profound, nothing more intimate than one's sense of self and how we choose to express it. And who should decide one's sense of self? We should. <laughs> um, gender is, as Holly Lewis says, at its core, a question of self-determination. As um, Sean Fay wrote in her brilliant piece in The Guardian titled, I'm trans and I don't care if we were born this way and neither should you, good title. Um, she says, I know trans people who disagree and believe gender identity is innate. I respectfully disagree. That's the key word here, respect. Call me a radical, but what, does it, but what does it matter where your profound sense of self comes from? I don't care if I was born trans or became trans. Transgender itself is a largely Western 20th century way to consider, to consider gender variance and covers a huge spectrum. What matters is whether being openly trans in our society can still provide opportunity for a life filled with joy or dooms you to unsaturated in misery. I think Faye really gets to the heart of the matter here. Um, and of course, um, it's, not, um, all rose, it's not all a rosy picture yet. Um, uh, trans women in particular remain targets of violence, job discrimination, and uh, myriad other things. Um, I'm sure everyone here uh, heard the story of Roxana Hernandez, a 33-year-old Honduran immigrant um, who died in ICE custody because guards didn't believe that she was ill um, and denied her medical attention and it led to her going into cardiac arrest. 
But Roxana suffered long before she was in ICE custody, having been raped four times, contracting HIV with almost no prospects for work, and living under the constant threat of violence in her own country. According to the Human Rights Campaign, in 2017, advocates tracked at least 28 deaths of transgender people in the United States due to fatal violence, the most ever recorded. These victims were killed by acquaintances, partners, and strangers, some of whom have been arrested and charged, while others have yet to be identified. Some of these cases involve clear anti-transgender bias. In others, the victim's transgender status may have put them at risk in other ways, such as forcing them into homelessness. It's a reminder, I think, um, that while it's possible to fight under these conditions for self-determination, um, the world requires a much larger battle for true, whole liberation. Um, and I think uh, Holly Lewis, who wrote um, this book, people should also check out, called The Politics of Everybody, um, I think makes a really good point around this, and she says, one cannot personally perform one's way out of ideology. We can perform against the prevailing ideology, break from what is generally repeated, but the parameters of that ideology will not change unless the material social relations that support the ideology also change. Social relations, class relations, do not prescriptively determine exactly what will be, but they constrain the parameters of what can be. For us, I think that means that we continue to celebrate this incredible new world of, of gender variance that's developing before us and continues to develop and teach us, I think, so much. Um, and at the same time, we fight against transphobia and any kind of anti-queer violence whenever um, it rears its ugly head. This new movement means concretely, I think, that the children born today will have to suffer much less um, in a life doomed to misery, as Sean Faye writes. And I think it's also a reminder that until we bring down the structures that prop up a world whose main feature is profound inequality despite immense wealth, a world that's forbidden so many of us from finding our own and living our own true selves, our job is far from done. Thank you. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.